Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows electoral politics are pretty fucked up in the U.S. Today we have Zoe and Kellen. Today we're talking to an advocate and activist who recently ended her run for Congress due to a number of systemic blockades, and we'll get into that. Uh, We originally were going to be talking about her campaign, but instead we're going to be talking about why their electoral system is fucked and is set up in a way to block working class and progressive candidates from being able to run. Um, We'll also talk about all of the other amazing work that she has done and is continuing to do. So welcome, Erica Vladimir. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited. Me too. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself a little before we jump in? Yeah, sure. Um, So I, like you said, my name is Erica Vladimir. Um, I am an attorney. Um, I'm also a self-described policy nerd and government nerd. Uh, (laughs) I started working for government uh, right out of law school. Um, I went to law school for education policy reform, and that was the work that I did once I graduated. Um, I got a fellowship with the New York State Senate working as an education analyst and counsel. Um, and from there, uh, moved to work for the New York City's Independent Budget Office as an education analyst. Um, while working for the city, I co-founded New York State's Sexual Harassment Working Group, um, which I know we'll, we'll get more into. Um, and a lot of this work is, is what really helped me decide that I wanted to run for office because I feel that we don't have enough advocates in office. We have a lot of career politicians um, and not enough people who have been doing the work behind the scenes and the work on the ground, uh, becoming and and being lifted up into elected office. And if we were going to, as I always said on my campaign, and I said it because I, I deeply believe this, if we are going to have a more compassionate, inclusive, and forward-thinking society, we really need more advocates in office. Um, and, and that's kind of what, you know, led me to where I am today, even, even as someone who is no longer running. Yeah, so um, that's all super fascinating. I was going to ask you to tell us a little bit about why you decided to run for office, and you're kind of already starting to answer that question. So I think that the the natural follow-up is like, what is it like to make that decision to, you know, seek a, um, a seat in government and like to actually start the process of a campaign? Yeah, it's, um, it is terrifying. Um, I will say the the calmest that I felt throughout this entire process of running for office was the moment that I decided I was going to run. Um, I was running for Congress against Carolyn Maloney in New York's 12th district. Uh, it's my first time running. And so for going for United States Congress um, is pretty bold if I do say so myself <laughs> you know I, I got I got a lot of stares a lot of 
why. Um, but, you know, when I had been talking to some uh, close people in, in my life about this and someone had sent me a Twitter video of the congresswoman standing at a rally um, where she was basically advocating against a bill that would decriminalize sex work here in New York State. And there was just this feeling of of calmness where it wasn't a a logical or a heady decision that I made, which is for me personally pretty big because I'm I'm a very heady person as an attorney. We're we're you know we're taught to think a lot, but this was more of a of a feeling of yes, this is this is what I need to do. But that calmness uh quickly disappeared <laughs> um, because it is, it really is terrifying. Um, it was like building a plane while trying to fly it at the oh same time. And there, there are so many things that I know that I would do differently. Um, more, and I don't think I would have known these things if I didn't run in, in the first place. Um, you know, a, a lot of it is trying to find that balance of putting myself out there as authentically as possible, but recognizing that there were certain points that I wanted to talk about or needed to talk about, that there were events that I needed to go to versus the events that I wanted to go to. There were certain priori priorities as a candidate that take precedence versus over um uh, priorities as an advocate. And that's really where I struggled a lot was recognizing that I found that there seems to be much more of a connection between being an advocate and being an elected official versus being an advocate and being a candidate. And the biggest part of that is money. And this goes back to what you were saying in the intro of talking about how our electoral system is uh, fucked up. <laughs> and a big part of that is because of the money that runs through it, the money that keeps it going, the money that keeps people in office, the money that you need to even run for office. Um, and, and that was really eye-opening. It was, it was jarring. Um, you can only prepare for it so much. Um, but the idea that I had to put fundraising um, as a bigger, stronger priority than being an advocate, uh, I really struggled with that. Yeah, if, when we talked to Julia Salazar, um, who I know that you know as well, she kind of had a similar answer of just like, well, someone had to run and like, I guess it was me. Um, <laughs> and just like, yeah, that <laughs> feeling of like, well, someone has to do it. And obviously the people doing it are not doing a good job. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh the, the senator is, is amazing. She was actually the one who introduced me to your podcast. We love, um, we love and, Julia. <laughs> yeah, she is, she is amazing. And, and, I, and I believe that she is one of the, the few people right now in office who, who really uh, def defines what it means to be an advocate in office, um, to, to recognize that it's not just about her as an elected official. There was an article that had come out um, a few months ago about her where she was quoted saying something about how her colleagues were telling her that she needs to stand in front of her staff. And she didn't feel like she should. It, it in a sense, almost made her uncomfortable. And, and then that, in and of itself, as a former government staffer, really resonated with me, that she understands that it's not an 
I did this and I did that, but a we did this and a we did that. And that as elected officials, we are only as strong and successful as the people that we've surrounded ourselves with um, and the people that we're working with, whether they're elected officials or staffers. Um, and those are the kinds of people we, we need in office, people who aren't there to continue to garner power, but recognize the the responsibility and the honor that comes with sitting in elected office on behalf of other people. Yeah, totally. Um, so originally you reached out after the chronic illness episode that we did with Caroline Riley and sent a very lovely message, which we really appreciated. Um, <laughs> but without asking you obviously to share any personal details that you do not want to share, which is totally fine. Um, do you want to talk a little about how chronic illness did affect your campaign? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and first, I, I appreciate you giving me the space to share as much or as little as, as I want. Um, this has been something that I've been very vocal about, um, especially when I was a candidate. God, that's still so weird to say sometimes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, um, I suffer from endometriosis. Um, and actually, that was the episode that Senator Salazar sent me um, because I had talked to her a lot about my endometriosis. Um, I was diagnosed first in 2015, um, but had been suffering without a diagnosis for probably a about five years before that and just never really being able to put a name to it. And like so many people who suffer with endometriosis thinking that I just suffer from bad periods and that's what it means to be a woman and I have to suck it up. Um, And it was almost to the day, two years after my second surgery. So back in November, 2019, where my symptoms started to come back. Um, and I just kind of realized that I was, um, I was in a lot of trouble. And even though I've suffered from, from chronic illness for so long, I still forget every time how exhausted it makes you and, and how much it can really control your life. Um, and this is something that I've been able to reflect on even just in the last two weeks. So I, I withdrew my candidacy from the race about two weeks ago. And, and since then, I've, I've really had the time and space to think about this and not only think about the endometriosis and the way that it's been affecting me, but I've actually had the space for it to impact me physically, mentally and emotionally um, in, in a complete way. As a candidate, you know, there, there is no time to, to be sick. And so there were, there were months, there were weeks where I was going, you know, two, three days without eating anything because part of my symptoms with endometriosis is severe nausea. Um, and I would go to events without, you know, after not eating for 48 hours, I would be at endorsement forums, standing up and talking to people and sort of feel like I was in this dream state because I hadn't eaten Um, or I'd be not standing up straight because it felt like there was a serrated knife in my left ovary. Um, And I didn't realize how much it was affecting me because I had to keep pushing forward. You, you can't, you can't half ass a campaign. And so I gave it everything I had. And 
I didn't realize until about two weeks ago that everything I had still wasn't enough. And it wasn't, I was still half-assing it because I didn't have the the energy. I didn't have the the mental and emotional capacity to give the campaign what, what I wanted to, what it deserves, and what I know I can give it. And that's because my endometriosis is back. And it's it's um it's really fucking shitty. And I I don't know I I don't know how else to put it. It's it's one of those things where, you know, I've immediately reached out to a surgeon and I'm and I'm I'm talking to them and I'm I'm gonna have to have surgery again and I'm gonna have to have it soon. Um and I don't really know if I'll understand how much of an impact it had in the eight months of my campaign until I have that surgery and I feel better. Because even like right now, sitting here talking to you both, I'm I'm having a good day. But on a good day, I'm still exhausted from my bad days that I had before earlier this week over the weekend um, or last weekend. And, and so even on my good days, I'm still recovering from my bad days. And I'm going to have some bad days at the end of next week. I can time it so, so easily with my cycle. And so until I have the surgery, I'm never going to really remember or understand what kind of shape I'm in or not in um, because I am affected by this and impacted by it on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, a lot with chronic illness, like something that I get is people saying like, wow, but, like, you're really strong or, like, you can handle it. And it's, like, you don't necessarily want to be strong. You just sometimes have no choice about it. And it's just, like, well, that's what I have to do Um, versus, like, (laughs) wanting to take that on, Um, which, yeah, is very shitty. Yeah, and I I totally feel that so so much, so much. It's, It's just that you know, you're, you're so strong and, and I sort of feel like I have no choice, Yeah. but, but to, but to be strong. Um, and, and part of that is because if I'm not strong, I'm not going to be able to do the things I want to do. Um, I also feel like if I'm not strong, then I have to continue to take that sympathy, empathy, and even pity from people and internalize it more. And, and, you know, as a, as a type A personality, I I don't want that. Um, I I want to be independent. I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody else, Um, you know, kind of thing. And so not being strong is almost like admitting that, that I, I can't do this on my own. And so I've, I've sort of convince myself that I have no other choice but to be strong because there's no other way to go through this. And I I do think there's a level of toxicity to that. And and there have certainly been days where I I I couldn't do anything and, and I had to give in. Um but because I'm I, I still have this feeling of I have to be strong on those days that I couldn't be it was even worse because I felt like I was letting myself down and I felt like I was letting my, my campaign down. I was, I was letting down the people that I, you know, felt like I was working with and working for and fighting alongside because I couldn't do my best. Um, and that was, 
that was really hard to admit. It's it's still really hard to admit. And I, I do think it's going to take some time and therapy to, to <laughs> sort through that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we appreciate you like talking about it with us now. Like, I think that all of these conversations go a long way in like destigmatizing chronic illness, destigmatizing even like endometriosis itself, which is something that I think is still really hard for people to talk about. Um, so thank you so much for, for like being part of that conversation too. And thank you for, for having these conversations. I mean, when, when Senator Salazar sent me your, your episode with, with Caroline and you were talking about endometriosis, I, I seriously sobbed through the entire oh. thing because it just, I, I felt so seen. I really, I really did. It just, I, I felt validated in how, how even the most irrational thought and feeling I had around it was was not that irrational mm. anymore. And, and, you know, because I've been going through this personally, it's, it's sort of, I've, I've been sharing, I shared a lot about it as a candidate because it really speaks to this fight for Medicare for all. Mm. Um, as someone who I was a full-time candidate, so I didn't have a job that could give me health insurance. I was without health insurance for six out of the eight months, nine months I was running. Oh. Um, and then when I had insurance, it was the New York state health exchange. So to find an endometriosis specialist on the health exchange, mm. um, was just not, it was not happening. Like it was just not happening at, at all. I couldn't find anybody. Um, and so I, I sort of used the, the campaign and the ability to speak about this on a, on a policy level um, as a way to kind of cope with it and, and disassociate myself from what I was going through. But your, your episode with Caroline really helped me bring it back home to myself. And I, and I think I needed that because it's, it is the, you know, the, the personal is political and it's, it's really important to, to not forget that, that, you know, I can talk about these things, but I have to remember that I am a human being going through this and, and that's what connects all of us together. And that's why I wanted to run for office in the first place is because of how, you know, how personal these, these issues impact, not just me, but so many other people, um, on an individual level. And it was just, it, it was a, a huge sigh of relief to, to hear an hour and 20 minutes of, of people just talking about this in such a, a real way that, you know, helped to, you know, define and describe it in, in the terms that we know best, which is that it's just really fucking shitty. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that it resonated like that. We, you know, that's the best thing that we can hear about like the, the work that we do. Um, yeah, you're, you mentioned like Medicare for all, which it obviously is something that we, you know, here at season, the bitch feel very passionate <laughs> about. And I think that segues nicely into another question that we had, which is, you know, for people who are leftists and do make their way into public office, you know, if, if that had been, you know, how things had worked out for you, what do you see, think are like ways that people who have those positions can make use of their power? Obviously trying to get the healthcare is, is a, is a big one. Yeah, abs absolutely. And, and also just recognizing that there, that 
politics should never come before humanity. Um, and, and I think that's what we're really seeing is that, I, look, I think in, in politics, I think in the private sector, I, I think in any workplace environment, you're going to find that there's some type of game that needs to be played. Um, how you're going to keep yourself in office, how you're going to get on the committee that you want, how are you going to get people to sign on your bills and get them introduced? What kinds of conversations do you need to have? Who do you need to, you know, trade political capital with? And, and I get that, but if that's the way you are legislating, if, if that, that is your true day to day, um, then, then we're in a lot of trouble. And, and that's what, that's what we have really seen happen, um, for, for so long. And, and this goes, you know, b- before Trump, I think Trump is just more of a, a, a symptom of a, of a huge crisis that we have in our government institution. Um, but it's that people are, they're, they're using their power to either a keep their power or garner more power. They're not mm-hmm. actually using their power for what we elected them for. Mm-hmm. And there's 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 so many reasons for that, but a, a big part of it too is just that I mean, people like power. You know, I you have to you have to have uh, a, a pretty high level of, of confidence in order to run for office. And rightfully so. I, I, I truly do believe that. But <laughs> what you do with that when you get into office is a completely different story. You have to remember that you are not there for yourself. And that means that you're not there to, to hold on to power with this iron grip. That sometimes it's a matter of risking the power that you have for fighting what's right. And we're not seeing enough of that. We're not seeing, you know, this this whole idea, you know, going back to, to endometriosis. I mean, endometriosis is tied to a quote-unquote women's issue. It's tied to our period. And so it's taboo. And we don't talk about those things. But these are there are so many people in a position of power who should be talking about this. And and Another thing that I that I've started to tie it to um, is is my work around sexual harassment or gender based harassment and discrimination. When you talk to people who experienced it in in the past, you know, 30, 40 years ago, a lot of what they'll they'll say is, "Well, I had to deal with sexual harassment in my workplace, and I turned out just fine." And so I, I can sort of see that now with when it comes to healthcare um, and even endometriosis, where it's, well, I had bad periods when I was younger and I'm, I'm fine. And so many women have bad periods and it is just what it is. And we need more people who recognize it in their position of power. That, that means they have the power to, to question the way things were and are and that they have the power to change things. And yes, Part of that might be risking the power that you have, but if you're not willing to do that, then you do not deserve that power in the first place. Mm, yeah. 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 I think that's a good, um, comparison of like, oh, I lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think that's a really good comparison of like, you know, not going with the status quo and not abs- accepting the like, well, that's just how it's always been. And it's like, no, that's not how it always has to be. That's not how that works. Um, but speaking of the status quo, 
in your statement, um, which you sent to us about why you chose to end your campaign, and we can link to that in the description because I did think that that was like very well written. Um, but you referred to you're welcome. <laughs> the you referred to the federal campaign finance system as the incumbent protection program, which I really liked that wording for it. Um, That's so good. Yeah, and. I mean, I think we all have a general idea, of course, of how the money in politics work, but what was that like as someone, like, dealing with, like, fighting that firsthand? Yeah, that's, um, it was, it was tough, and, you know, as, as much as I'm realizing now how much my endometriosis impacted the way that I was able to run my campaign, um, I, I, I do believe that the biggest factor for, for me was, was funding, um, or maybe I should say lack thereof. Um, and, and, and a part of it, there's, there's, there's so many different factors to it and, and it's all can fall under the, the umbrella of, of campaign finance. Um, you know, when, when you're going up against an incumbent, especially likes, um, someone like Congress member Maloney, who has been there for 28 years, um, the, the things that, that we as, as progressives, as leftists, as, as younger, a younger generation that is willing to dig into the weeds, um, especially on things like campaign finance, it's hard to bring that narrative forward and have that type of nuanced conversation with people who are more of the mindset of, well, she's a Democrat and she's been there for 28 years, so why am I going to go with somebody that I don't know and someone who's younger? Um, and because of that, we don't get to bring to light things like Carolyn Maloney takes corporate PAC money from BlackRock. And BlackRock is the world's largest asset management company, and the biggest investment that they make is in fossil fuel and coal industry. So as we're trying to fight climate change, as she signs on to be a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal, she's also taking funding from BlackRock. She takes funding from Pfizer, a pharmaceutical company. And we know that the pharmaceutical industry is one of the biggest funders of elected officials and their campaigns. And that is one of the biggest reasons why prescription drug prices are so high and why we can't get closer to a Medicare for all single payer healthcare system. Um, so when, when you look at, when you try and have those conversations about somebody who has held power for so long, it becomes unfortunately nuanced enough that people just aren't willing to listen because we're all as humans more comfortable with what we know and we would rather stick with that and we're going to make excuses there were so many people that I talked to and it's well yeah she might take money from BlackRock but she co-sponsored the Green New Deal whereas for me my argument was you can't sponsor the Green New Deal and also take money from BlackRock. We don't need elected officials who are just talking the talk anymore. It's it's time to have elected officials who are walking the walk. And so I I, I think that's that's one piece of the campaign finance. Um, you know, another piece is just as somebody who is running for the first time, um, what what they tell you as as a candidate is you have to Rolodex your contacts. So that means going and picking up your phone and looking at all of your contacts. And if you're like me, who has had the same phone number since I got a cell phone back in 
eighth, ninth grade. Um, and most of those phone numbers tend to carry over because of technology in the cloud. I have phone numbers from people who I haven't talked to in about 10, 15 years. But you're supposed to call your, your Rolodex, your personal Rolodex, and ask every single one of those people for, for funding. Oh and that's God. where your that's where your found your foundational financing as a candidate is supposed to come from. And you know, I I I have a really close knit um, network of family friends. So in in the Jewish uh, culture, uh, we use this Yiddish word called mishpacha, which basically means like um, family family by by love, as as opposed to family by blood. And these people have known me since I was five years old. They've seen me grow. They, you know, used to pick me up from school when I was six. Some of them are like second mothers and fathers, and they've always supported me. But they're not political people them, themselves. They don't follow politics and policy in government the way that I do. And so when I go to them and, and I have to ask them to, to donate to my campaign, it's, it's, a, it's harder to have that type of conversation to help them understand how important it is for them to be able to donate um, and to donate as much as they possibly can. And it's also a really uncomfortable conversation to have, whether it's someone that I've known and talked to, you know, all the time since I was five mm -hmm. or someone that I haven't talked to, uh, you know, in 15 years. And when you don't have that personal network, you're already starting 10 steps back from somebody who has that personal network. And sometimes people have a personal network that's filled with a lot of money and they may not be into politics, but they support you as an individual. So sure, take this max out check of $2,800. You know, there, there are people who run for office and, and they have those networks and they're really fortunate. Mm. I don't have that network. And so I was starting 10 steps back. And then also running in 2020, and I'm, I'm going to be really interested in, in seeing people look at this once we're through the 2020 elections um, and, and doing some type of analysis. And I, I don't have the, the data analytic skills to be able to do this. But I see 2020 as a very interesting year to be running for office as a first-time young, quote-unquote, insurgent candidate, as they like to call us. Um, and that's because, A, you have the, the presidential election. And so we're, we're competing for earned media. We're competing for, mm. for potential voters' attention at a time where the presidential primaries are on a completely different day. Um, we have our state-level elections also happening at the same time. So the New York State Senate and Assembly races are also on the same day as the congressional races. And there's, there's a lot of really strong grassroots momentum on that to get a veto-proof majority in the New York State Senate. So they have to flip, I think it's about six or seven more seats, as well as maintain all of the Democratic seats that, that they got in 2018. And also to uh, elect assembly members who are what we call like true blue. So people who are more than just Democrats in name only. Um, and, and then there are, the, we've seen in 2020, such a surge of first-time progressive candidates, first-time um, 
candidates who come from an activist and an advocacy background, recognizing that running for office, being in office is, is another step and taking our advocacy and activism to a very different level. And so we're all competing for the attention of the same people. And that means we're also competing mm. for the same people's money. And that's really hard as someone who's new, as someone who, you know, we do this thing called call time as candidates, um, uh, elected officials who have been in office for decades still do it just as much as first time candidates have to. Um, but that means sitting on the phone and cold calling people for five to six hours a day and in five minutes introducing yourself, having some type of meaningful conversation, and then asking them for money at the end of that conversation. And these people are getting phone calls day in and day out from people like me. And so I couldn't necessarily blame them for when they would say to me, you are the fourth candidate who has called me this week, and I can't do this anymore. Take me off your goddamn list and would hang up because we're not made of money. You know, Trump, <laughs> Trump loves to talk about how well the economy is doing, but like who, how, who's it doing well for? It's not doing well for me. It's yeah. not doing well for a lot of the people that I, you know, got on the phone. Um, and we're also in a day and age where people don't pick up a phone number that they don't know. Um, and, and so I think there's just a lot of factors that go into making it that much harder for us to be able to run effective campaigns, because unfortunately, it still does take money. And I'm not just talking about the, the commercials that people might want to, you know, throw onto TV, like on New York One, or, you know, digital advertising on Twitter or Facebook. But I'm even talking about just like creating lit. That, I, that has my face, my name, what my policy points are that I can hand out to people while I'm standing at 7 a.m. at a subway stop to introduce myself to people in the district. I'm talking about building a team around me who they may not necessarily have the, the expertise and experience that a lot of other um, incumbents can get on their campaign teams, but you still want to pay these people a living wage you want to yeah, make sure that yeah. they're, you know, that they have enough money to to thrive, and that they're not just living paycheck to paycheck. That you know, recognizing that they too probably have student loans, that they too have a rent payment that they have to make in New York City, um, that they also need to eat, and so you you want to be able to to provide these people with with a living wage, and when you can't fundraise that type of money, everything breaks down. And, and you can't run an effective campaign that way. And there are certainly some people out there who feel like if what they need to focus on day in, day out as a candidate is fundraising, that that's going to work for them. I couldn't do that anymore. And, and that's what we really realized is that if I was going to move forward with this campaign, every month we would be stressing out of, are we hitting our financial goals? Are we hitting our financial goals? Do we have enough money? are we hitting our financial goals? And that takes time away from me being able to have meetings with advocates and activists about mm-hmm. the policies that, you know, constituents care about. Um, putting together, you know, I held a press conference on on the Title IX rules and, and how the rollback by the U.S. Department of Education um, would really uh, 
you know, put students from kindergarten all the way through college in danger with gender-based violence and harassment, um, I wouldn't be able to do those things anymore if I kept going because I was going to have to focus on fundraising. And that's not me. That's not why I got into this race. That's not why a lot of us get into this race. And it's showing that the system protects people who know how to fundraise, who will take money from anybody, and then can keep that money and carry it over year after year. Carolyn Maloney, who I ran against, really didn't have, besides, so 2018, she had a really strong primary challenger. But before that, she didn't really have a primary challenger before 2010. And so you know, she, she can still fundraise money, but then that money just sits there. And so she has $500,000, a million dollars that she can just whip out and use. And then there's also the, the personal, um, finances. Carolyn was, you know, Carolyn Maloney was able to borrow or I'm sorry, lend her campaign a hundred thousand dollars of her own money. I would have fucking killed <laughs> able to my campaign a hundred thousand dollars knowing that I was going to be able to pay it back like I just I just didn't have that capacity mm-hmm. and how how can we be expected to compete with that it's just it's not feasible yeah now I mean that makes total sense and like you know if we do I mean to to sort of shift gears a little bit like if if we are sort of this larger we um you know having to try to affect change outside the electoral system um you know what do you feel like are the best and most effective ways that um people can make that happen having sort of seen what what being involved on the electoral side looks like uh there's 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 a lot um i i think I think first and foremost is is do do something, right? I, I think there's there's so many people out there who who see this this political system and just feel like it is so fucked. And why are they even going to try and get involved because of how fucked it is? They would rather walk away from it. And I, I can't say that I blame them, but we have to stop doing that. We have to realize that if we recognize that there is a huge problem, it's time for all of us to become a part of the solution. And so the more of us who are willing to do that, the the more of an impact we're going to be able to have. Um, when, you know, specifically when it comes to, to campaign finance, you know, I, I think... I think there's various levels. I, I think we have to start having more of, of a conversation about it. Everything is more about being able to educate ourselves and each other about what a campaign finance system would look like, um, fighting for it on every level of government. Um, you know, we have it in New York City on on the city level. Um, New York State pretended that they were going to do it, and now it's going to be laughable when it actually gets into law, but that could be a whole nother podcast episode, so we're not going to go into that. Um, but, you know, a, <laughs> a, a, a big, you know, a, a big part of it, though, is is start fighting for this on every level. So it becomes sort of like a norm of, yeah, look at how many states and how many cities and how many localities do have something like, you know, like a public campaign finance system. It's probably time for this to happen on a national level. Um, You know, a lot of the things that that progressive 
first, not even first time, but a lot of first time candidates talk about is that every dollar helps. And so if you have $3, if you have $5, if you have a dollar and that's all you can give, that actually does mean something. And we're really not blowing smoke up people's asses when we say that as, as candidates. We we truly do mean that. And I think that's really important is if if you if you have the the ability to donate five dollars that is just so important and and don't don't convince yourself otherwise um really take what we are saying um uh, for to to be the the honest truth and so recognizing that um you know that that those small dollars really do go a long way is is so in, important, but I do think that the you know going back to what I said in the in the beginning, just more people have to get involved, more people have to stop writing off a broken system and be willing to rewrite the system and and get involved in doing so. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little more about your advocacy work. As you said in the beginning, you started the sexual harassment working group, um, which pushed for, obviously, <laughs> um, change around sexual harassment. So what was that work like? Yeah, so um, in January of 2018, um, I came out publicly with my story of being sexually harassed by the state senator that I was working for at the time. Um, it was about three years after it had happened, but like so many people, um, I was, I was really, um, I, my, my entire world was turned upside down when I saw what was happening with all the survivors coming out against Harvey Weinstein. And I realized as somebody who wanted to work in government, who had been working in government and, and planned to continue to do so, um, it, it goes back to what I just said before. I, I, I see a problem and I wanted to be part of the solution. And I felt like I couldn't be a part of the solution if I didn't tell my own story first. Um, and it was a result of telling that story that I met some amazing, amazing people who unfortunately themselves had experienced harassment, assault, and, and discrimination um, at the hands of state elected or appointed officials in, in New York State. And we really decided that we wanted to tackle this from a systematic and systemic level. Um, and, and that meant holding our elected officials accountable and asking them to create a meaningful process in, in when, when addressing um, gender-based harassment and, and violence. And we, you know, the, the, the name sexual harassment working group kind of really just came out of this idea that there were seven of us then. And, um, you know, we couldn't just always list our names that, that if we wanted to like, you know, be cited publicly, we needed something. And it also came from this, from the idea that like, we, we were just all policy wonks. We, we dug into the legislative proposals that were put out there. We, we looked at the, the political negotiations that were happening on behalf of survivors. And it was really clear that nobody had talked to a goddamn survivor. Because if they did, they never would have introduced, negotiated, and then passed the, the laws that they did. Um, and this was in April of, of 2018, April of 2018. And, and we just realized we had to 
take it into our own hands. And so we worked with other advocates and experts and survivors who had been fighting for these types of reforms for years, um, you know, talk to them about what we felt would be really good policy changes. And we put together our own policy proposals. We rolled those out in, in June of, of 2018. And one of the things we really started to fight for after that was, um, legislative public hearings. Um, what, what we found was the, the, the importance of telling our stories of, of survivors telling their stories was continuing to be diminished by the very people who were in power. Um, they felt that their voices were more important than those who actually had firsthand experience who, as we would say, became unintended experts of their own trauma. And we felt that if they were going to really create the strongest laws against harassment and discrimination, they had to hear these stories. They had to provide the space for survivors to talk about what they went through um, in, a, in a public way. Because A, that would help us start to destigmatize um, what happens when, when we are harassed and assaulted and experience this type of violence. Um, it starts to break down those barriers and it's the complete opposite of how these experiences normally happen, which is behind closed doors in the dark. Um, and there is nothing that can inform the creation of strong policies and laws better than firsthand experience. And so we felt that public hearings were incredibly important. New York State had not held a public hearing on sexual harassment in the workplace in nearly 30 years. Oh my God. And yeah, it had, it had been a really long time. Um, <laughs> too long, as yeah. we would say. Um, and it was really, it was, it was senators like Julia Salazar, mm -hmm. who were these young powerhouse, badass women who had come into office when nobody thought that they would win, who stood by us and said, yeah, this, this is actually what needs to happen because the status quo never did this and look where we are and, and, we, and this needs to change. And, and because of senators like Senator Salazar and Senator Biagi and Gennardis, um, and Myrie, um, and Ramos and, and other elected officials in the assembly, like Yuli New and, um, Aravella Simotis, you know, they were the ones that we were able to trust to carry our fight behind those closed doors. Because as we're trying to, you know, break down these, these closed doors behind the scenes negotiations, they're, they're still taking place, right? Like you, you have to, as you're trying to dismantle the system, you also have to find ways to succeed within it. And we had these trusted partners. We had these elected officials that when they said to us, this was an amazing conversation. You have incredibly valid points. I'm going to take this to leadership in our next conference, in our next meeting. We could actually trust them to do that and also trust them to say to us, this is this can't happen. I think we're going to have to wait for this and we're not going to be able to do that. And by them being so willing to work with us, we were able to secure two joint legislative public hearings on sexual harassment, and then also get about six different pieces of legislation passed in, in June of 2019, uh, June of 2019 and, and really um, overhaul the New York State labor and human rights laws to protect millions of workers 
across New York. And there's certainly a long way to go. Um, it's it's not the end, but this this was proof of what happens when when we reclaim our space and when we have trusted partners in office who understand what it means to use their power wisely. Yes, totally. Sorry, I had muted myself and was um, <laughs> drinking something. <laughs> but yeah, so okay. <laughs> we're getting towards the end of our hour. But um, I did want to ask, and maybe you're not totally sure yet, because I know you, the campaign th- ended recently, but like, what is next for you? What are you? Yeah, what are you looking to what direction are you looking to go in now that you decide not to run? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, I th- there's interestingly enough, I mean, you know, I I am looking for any opportunity to continue to work with other candidates who are continuing their journey, um, especially first time candidates who are in this fight for the right reasons. Um, I'm I'm looking to continue my career in government and policy and politics. Um, I'm I'm not looking to to step away from that. Uh, you know, when I when I first decided to run and after I announced, um, one of the things I said was that I am first and foremost an advocate, and and even if that means I I lose the race or if I'm no longer in the race for whatever reason, that that will never go away. Um, and that's I I didn't say that. To, to just sound cool. I, I said that because it's true. Um, and so I, w- I want to continue my advocacy work. I, I made some amazing connections. Um, there, there's so many different policies that I want to continue to dig into and read about and see which way, you know, what, what role I can play as an advocate, as an activist, as an attorney, as a government staffer um, to, to advance the, the progressive movement on a, on a government and, and, um, you know, a legislative level. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, um, some of that might, or all of that might have to go on hold because I need surgery again. And so I'm, I'm fortunate that I have, uh, a, a Jewish mother who takes her role as a Jewish mother very seriously. Um, <laughs> one of, one of the first things she said to me after I told her that I was going to withdraw from the race, you know, she gave me a huge hug. And the first thing she said was, you know, you're amazing, right? And if you don't, I'll, I'll tell you every single day. And then the second thing that she said to me was, oh good. Now I can start bothering you about your health even more starting tomorrow and not feel so bad about it. Um, <laughs> uh, and so she, you know, has has pushed me to to see a, a surgeon um, who I already have, um, unfortunately, out of pocket. Um, but I again am, am fortunate and even privileged to have family that that can help me through this. And there's a chance that I'm going to have to have surgery in in the next few weeks. Um, and just like I felt like my endometriosis was really going to. St- um, hinder me from being the strongest candidate that I can be. Um, my endometriosis can really hinder me from being the strongest advocate I can be. And, um, I, I only give my entire being to, to anything that I put my mind to, to anything that I want to do. And if I can't do that right now, I have to, I have to fix that. And if that means putting my career at the moment on, on hold for the next couple of months so I can be healthy, uh, then, then so be it. 
And I, I say that sounding like it's it's really easy, but in my head, I'm like screaming at myself, like you can't do that. So it, it's not as easy as I'm making it sound. Um, but but I I know that is that's something that I really have to take into serious uh, serious consideration. Awesome. Well, we, you know, hope that that everything goes well with the surgery and, um, you know, have no doubt that you're going to be back like kicking ass, you know, at some point, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later. But you got to like take care of yourself. And we're glad to hear that, like, you're going to be able to do that. So um, this was just such a pleasure getting to talk to you today and having you on our show. And yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me again. And and thank you just for creating this this space in, in your podcast. It's it's awesome. And I, I feel really, really lucky to be able to be a part of it. Oh, we felt lucky to have you on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, that was awesome. Um, it's so interesting to like hear what it's like from the other side um, of like being, you know, trying to become an elected official. Um, can I just like go ahead and say that that Rolodex thing is literally my nightmare. <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm like sitting here thinking about all the people who are in my phone, like people who I met like my first week of college oh have God, not spoken yes. to they would probably ignore me if we, they, I have, there are people that I've, I've pretended not to see as I've walked past them in the street. I cannot imagine a calling them and be calling them to ask for money. Um, brave, just brave, truly brave. Uh, yeah, I once, I tried a couple of years ago to go through my phone and like delete like old contacts. And then because of iCloud, when I got a new phone, they just like came back. My God, you literally can't escape. Someone's yeah. now gonna at me and be like, "You don't know how phones work." Um, uh, definitely delete contacts, but whatever. I, I don't. Uh, I don't know how technology works, and I don't really care. Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Zoe listens to our podcast on a phonograph. Thank you very much. Someone did ask me earlier how like the RSS feed works for Patreon, and I was like. I don't know how it works. Um, I could send you a tutorial that I used. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, do not direct technology conversations at me. Thank you. But you know what you can, how you can direct questions at us. Mm. Great segue, Kellen. Wow. Thank you so much, everybody. Yes, you can reach out to us at Season of the Bee on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, we are at Season of the Bee at gmail.com. Um, as you heard, um, we got into this great conversation with, with Erica because she reached out to us after hearing one of our episodes. So um, we love hearing from you guys. If you have ideas about episodes or um, think that you might be like fun to have on, we probably agree with you. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out, um, get in touch with us any of those kinds of ways. Um, most importantly, you can find us at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Um, congratulations to all of our Patreon listeners who are hearing this um, early. Uh, we are also releasing a lot of content. You may have seen our most recent episode called Michael Bloomberg, give us $5,000 that and much, uh, all kinds of other content is available on our Patreon for Patreon listeners only. So definitely check it out. Throw us a couple dollars there. Um, in the meantime, you know, we'll see you every Friday. Yep. 
We'll see you next Friday. Well, see we won't next... see you, but actually you'll hear us. You'll next hear Friday. us. It's a one-way street. That's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Well, Zoe, this has been a blast. I love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch. <laughs>